All right, would you take your Bibles? Two places I'd like you to go. 1 Corinthians 6 and Psalm 139, okay? 1 Corinthians 6, Psalm 139. We're going to read from 1 Corinthians 6 first. This is the passage for this morning. We're going to pick it up in verse 12 as we move verse by verse through 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 1 Corinthians, the entire book. But we're in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, and here's what Paul says. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. 1 Corinthians 6, 12. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And let me just pause here for a second and just say, uh, this sermon is adult content. So if you have some young ones, I just want to give you a heads up that we are getting into some adult content. So I'll leave it up to you parents to determine if you want the younger ones to stay. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. 16. Do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he, or God says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You've been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Fathers, we uh, tackle your word and we get into a section that is certainly challenging, just like just about every part of the Bible. It certainly is so contra our uh, cultural uh, values these days. This will certainly um, run against those and perhaps even offend many. However, it is your word. And when Paul uh, makes his argument, he appeals to the sanctity of the body, that it's a creation of God that it is a place where God, if you're a Christian, dwells, and it is a place to be used for his purposes. Lord, we know that you created intimacy for a purpose. You, it's your idea. Forgive us for how we have taken what you uh, said would be beautiful and powerful, and we've sadly muddied and dirtied it. But we know with you there's forgiveness and amazing grace, and many of us can say we come from sexual brokenness in one way or the other. We've all sinned and fallen short of your glory. This is an area of life where it seems to be a dominant sin, but we know your grace is sufficient, and I pray that you would both speak truth to us so that we can be challenged, but put salve on our hearts where we have failed knowing that you died for every sin we've ever committed. We commit this time to you. Pray that you would be glorified in it. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. 
You may have noticed that in the section we just read together, the word body is used nine times in nine verses. One of the, uh, in the New American Standard, one time it says bodies, plural. But you see body, body, body over and over and over again. And so the word body in Greek is soma. And it does speak of your physical body, your, your creation of God, the body that you're in right now. And it also has a wider application to the whole of you or your personality. Many of you have memorized Romans 12, 1 and 2, and you know that it tells you there to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your reasonable service in view of his great mercy. God made your body. Sometimes what we do in Christian apologetics is we use something called the cosmological argument. And that is, we make an argument for God's existence from the creation. And we often will talk about the stars, and we'll talk about, uh, you know, a bird soaring in the uh, sky, or we'll talk about the distance of the moon from the earth, or the sun, or six million forms of plants and animals, and all these kinds of things. But one thing that I just want to place in your mind if you haven't thought about this before, perhaps haven't used it before, is the incredible creation of your body. Your body is a testimony to the fact that there is a great designer who made you with great detail. Now, we had Nazareth here on Friday night. How many of you uh, saw Nazareth? He was extremely funny, and he, he was talking about, you know, we're made in the image of God, but we do live in a fallen world, and some of us have been hit harder by the fall than others. And that was a kind of a funny moment. He was talking about, he, it was self-deprecating humor. He's talking about you lose your hair and, you know, he's using the word ugly, but anyway, we won't go there for our purposes. But the point is that when you look at your body, and I could read a section that I pulled from the internet. I'm not going to read the section, but I'll just tell you, here's what it was saying. It was talking about, the way that your eyes are designed and how the a camera is designed to somehow try to follow the creation of your eye. How much information your brain actually holds. It catalogs libraries and libraries of information. Um, how much blood your heart pumps in a single day. It's gallons upon gallons upon gallons. It's just, it's just amazing. And for our purposes this morning, one of the things that we can see from the design of the body is that God has even included reproduction and intimacy. And he's created you, male and female, in the image of God to fit together in that sense, to find beauty and connection with another individual. Now, the way God designed this from the beginning is found in Genesis 2.24, and it says this, For this cause... A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Hebrew experts say the one flesh statement there, primarily, although it has other meanings, it could speak of you know, oneness and friendship, it could speak of oneness in terms of your union with the Lord, two Christians walking in the Spirit, but but the one flesh expression is primarily about coming together in marriage in intimacy. That a male and female, when they come together in the sexual act, become one. And they experience a closeness 
that cannot really be known with another human being. Now, we know that even though that's God's creation, as we read our Bibles, we read the Old and New Testaments, we can see how even heroes that we would all say, you know, our names that we could quickly think of made their mistakes in this area. One man that comes to mind quickly is David, who fell in adultery with Bathsheba and paid that price. When David talks about the creation of the body, this is where I want you to look at Psalm 139 for a sec, and I'm going to read from the NIV. It has it uh, beautiful here, and uh, this is something that a lot of you have heard before, but this is Psalm 139. going to read uh, 13 through 16. David says, You, Psalm 139, 13, You created my inmost being. If you have a New Living Translation, it says, You made all the delicate inner parts of my body. Psalm 139, 13. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, and I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes, 16, saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Let's go back to, uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, in our culture, we know in the 60s and now today, there is uh, this push towards what people would categorize as sexual freedom. And what that really means to most people is that I want to be able to do what I want to do with whoever I want to do it, whenever I want to do it, and no one's going to tell me what I should do. That's kind of the message in the culture today. And it's moved into the abortion debate, where many of you have heard this being said by people. I even heard this a couple days ago in a debate going back and forth between a pro-lifer and a pro-choicer. And the pro-choice person said, it is my body and it is my choice. Have you heard that before? So I don't want anybody, I don't want any law telling me what I can do. And usually it's couched in this way. It's between me and my doctor. It's my body. And so, you know, basically back off. If somebody could put a bumper sticker on their life, it might be back off, you know, buster. Who are you to tell me what to do? And in one sense, it's true. It is your body. Your body's a gift from God. It's been specially designed and created by God. But in another sense, your body is not yours, especially if you're a Christian. In fact, we just read at the end of the section that you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Uh, in the next sermon we're going to do, and this is in uh, 1 Corinthians 7, look at verse 4, just to look ahead for a moment. It says, the wife, 7, 4, does not have authority over her own body. But the husband does, and likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So you can see that the Bible talks about the fact that you have to kind of broaden your, your scope in terms of how you look at your body. Because maybe you've been buying the cultural argument, and you don't really have a biblical worldview when it comes to your body. Maybe you just don't. Could I challenge you that if you would be quickly offended by this sermon, that you would just pause for a moment and, and ask this question. If you consider yourself a Christian, will you at least hear the case for the Christian worldview? 
Will you hear what the Bible has to say? And I'm talking to people who will listen to this message later uh, on other mediums that we put it out, even the radio. And I'm going to ask you the question, will you give the Christian worldview a hearing? Let me say this to you. Just so you know, God is not some ogre in the sky or some cosmic killjoy. He created the sexual relationship for both pleasure and for progeny or reproduction. God does not want to ruin your fun, but he has given boundaries by which he says, this is where I will bless the sexual relationship and this is where I will not bless it. And so you have to determine whether you're going to get on board with what God said about where he's going to bless the sexual relationship. He wants it to be a relationship where you experience oneness and pleasure. And by the way, that's not wrong. The Song of Solomon, if you've ever read the Song of Solomon, has an incredible, we might even call it erotic treatment of love. And it is something that might make most even modern readers blush a bit. But they celebrate that they can find satisfaction and pleasure in one another's bodies. And as Christians, we need to know that that's not wrong. Because sometimes we send a message to the culture that that's a taboo topic. No, God created it. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 5, uh, just to give you a little sample of it, it uh, the writer says these words. It says, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. That's just a sample of what the Bible says. So God is not saying you cannot enjoy this area, but he is saying I want you to do it my way and in my time within the context of marriage. And Hebrews 13, 4 says the marriage bed is undefiled. You don't have to be embarrassed about that. In the context of marriage, this is where you should have a beautiful oneness with your spouse. And you can celebrate that and enjoy that. And there is obviously powerful connection in that. But sadly, in the Corinthian culture, just like in our culture, they took it out of its proper context. And so... There was all kinds of excuses that they were making, and it would appear that they even, even were living by what many believe are slogans. So here's the, the first one that everybody, I think just about everybody agrees, is some sort of slogan that the Corinthian church or culture had embraced. Look at verse 12, 1 Corinthians 6. It says, all things are lawful for me. Now, if you have an NIV, you might notice that's in quotes because the majority of scholars believe that all things are lawful for me is a slogan in the Corinthian church. Now, there are others, or in the Corinthian culture, there are others that argue that they took a, Paul's teaching about grace, that you're saved by grace through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's not by works. It's not by merit. You're saved completely by grace. And somehow they took that teaching and then determine, okay, if I'm saved by grace and my works have nothing to do with it, then all things are lawful for me. I can, I can do whatever I want. You may know somebody who claims to be a Christian, and that is their mantra. You're saved by grace, so you can do whatever you want. It's no big deal. Or they might even say, well, God will forgive you, so if you got that one wrong, it's cool, because grace, 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 grace. 
But Paul does say in Romans that you never use grace as what? An excuse for sin. And whenever you sin, what ha ends up happening is you pay a price. You never sin in a vacuum, and especially sexual sin has, has a more, um, more of an impact on the person, and we'll, we'll see that in a verse to come. So, all things are lawful for me. Perhaps this was something that they were saying in the Corinthian congregation. All things are lawful for me. Do you know, do you have some friends that live by slogans like this or snappy sound bites? If it feels good, do it. And sometimes people, I'm shocked that people don't even think through the sound bites that they live by. I remember I, I was talking to a guy and he quoted from a poem that was written by an atheist. And he said, that was written by a Christian, right? And I was like, no, that was written by an atheist. And basically the poem was about a, a person being the master of their own soul and the master of their own destiny. And he, he had lived several decades believing that that was written by a Christian. And I said, no, that is contrary to the Christian view. God's the master of your destiny, not you. And so it, it interests me that people will uh, kind of embrace these things and they become things by which they live their lives and make decisions. Maybe the Corinthians would say it something like, like this, free of restraints, definitions, or inhibitions. I don't have to restrain myself in this area. The, there was a Greek teaching that was kind of codified or became a system called Gnosticism. And one view of Gnosticism was captured in an idea, sorry for the big words, of antinomianism. Simply just means no law. And in some schools of Gnostic thought, they said all that really matters is your soul or spirit. It doesn't matter what you do with your body because your body is matter and all matters evil. So this came from some philosophy from Plato, and it developed over time. And so basically what they said is this, you can do whatever you want with your body because it doesn't affect your spirit. People say it this way today, God knows my heart. Yeah, he does know your heart, but he also does care about what you do with your body. And sometimes what we do is we, we use little catchphrases to justify sinful behavior Let's face it, when we know it's wrong, we know we're outside of the scope of God's will, we know there are Bible verses that are clear that we are violating, yet we can find some way to say, well, oh, God knows my heart. Yeah, he does, and he knows what you're doing, too. <laughs> he knows how you're justifying your behavior with snappy catchphrases that are really more about the culture than they are about Scripture. And people say, well, I'm free. Uh, I can do what I want. But have you ever looked into the eyes of someone who makes that claim and see how hollow indeed that can be? All things are lawful for, my be, for me uh, might actually be I'm a slave to all things. True freedom is not about being consumed with self, but worrying less about yourself and more about others. Freedom is loving people more. Are you free enough to do something that might be helpful for someone else? What do you think the cultural outlook has produced? Look around. What do you think this so-called freedom has produced? Do you see chivalry, honor, 
respect, true love, take a look around. What, surf on your TV and see where you see it. Honor, chivalry, respect, true love. Do you see it? I don't. Largely, I don't. And we know that Paul uses the word pornea when he is talking about sexual immorality. And these are just some quick stats. Porn sites receive more regular traffic today than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. 35% of all internet downloads are porn-related. 34% of internet users have expo been exposed to unwanted porn via ads or pop-ups. People who admit to having an extramarital affair, I'm reading from a, a website's stats, were over 300% more likely to admit to consuming porn than those who have never had an extramarital affair. Porn is a global, estimated $97 billion industry, with about $12 billion of that coming from the United States. In 2016 alone, get this, more than $4 billion 599 million hours of porn were consumed on the world's largest porn site. That is 4,599,000,000 hours of consumption on one porn site. I could go on. But you can see that when the world claims to have freedom, I'm not sure that's true at all. And so Paul says in the NIV, verse 12, everything is permissible for me. He might be saying it back to them, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, permissible for me, but I will not be mastered or dominated by anything. You see, you could make a claim, at least in some areas, and maybe Paul is quoting back the slogan to them, yes, you're free. Yes, Jesus Christ pays for all sin. But you have to weigh your Christian life by what is beneficial. And of course, immediately as a Christian, I can say there are things that are sinful and not, and so those are easy to categorize. But then there's another part of life where I have to ask what's actually beneficial for my life. Even though I'm saved by grace through faith, what, what is it going to be in terms of a benefit if I do this thing? Here's an example. Uh, you could have a debate about smoking cigarettes, and some of you have wrestled with, you know, maybe an addiction to cigarettes, and people have said, uh, will cigarettes keep you out of heaven if you smoke cigarettes? No. Cigarettes won't keep you out of heaven, but it may get you there quicker, <laughs> right? I don't, I don't know that there's a Bible verse that says smoking sends people to hell. Of course it doesn't, but you will have an impact on your body. Your diet. You are free to eat whatever you want. Jesus said it's not what goes into a man that defiles a man, but what comes out of a man defiles him. So you could eat whatever you want. But if you eat chocolate cake three times a day and for dessert, you, you even have a song about your chocolate cake, celebrating your, your freedom, let me tell you, you're probably going to end up with diabetes and high sugar, and probably it's going to impact your life, right? Decisions that we make, I could say it's lawful for me, but is it 
profitable. And, of course, we have to be careful even how we look at things like this because um, Paul is not saying, oh, you can do whatever you want. He's saying, look, you've got to weigh everything by the Scripture first, and then you've got to ask the question about what's actually beneficial. A major theme in the book will be that which edifies. Paul will say love edifies. Spiritual gifts should edify other people. Uh, if we do something that stumbles somebody else, even if we're free to do it, we shouldn't do it because it would stumble them instead of edifying them. So we have to look at our Christian life in a way that we would ask this question. Is it helpful or hurtful? Notice that Paul even personalizes it. Look at 12. He says, he says everything is permissible for me. But Paul would say later, follow me as I follow Christ. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. And then Paul says, I will not be brought under the power of anything. I refuse to be dominated by anything except one master. I have one master, and his name is Jesus. Later in the book, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 9.27, I buffet my body and make it my slave. Literally, the picture is I have to beat up my body and beat it into submission, metaphorically speaking, so that I don't fall and disqualify myself and somehow hurt the message that I preach to others by my own failure. I even heard a story of a pastor who had the names of all these pastors who had moral failures, hundreds of them, and he kept, uh, kept them in a book to remind himself that he could fall at any time. We have to guard our lives. And so Paul is saying, look, I even have to buffet my own body so that I make it my slave instead of I becoming a slave to my body. I have a new master. His name is Jesus. Now this could be another slogan or just something that uh, Paul is commenting on, but Notice it says 13, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them. May have gone something like this. Some believe this was a second slogan. And the Corinthians said something like this. Food is for the stomach and the stomach's for food. When you're hungry, you eat. And so they tried to move this into the area of sexual gratification. And they said something like this. When you're hungry, you eat food. So if you have a sexual impulse, you should satisfy it. And I will tell you, in this cultural setting, it was even culturally acceptable to fulfill your pleasures with a prostitute. Culturally acceptable. Nobody really even worried too much about it. It was a cultural norm for men to have concubines, for men to go to prostitutes, for men to have a wife through which, by which, they would have a family, and then he would go over here and then find pleasure with a prostitute. And they would live by a soundbite and say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, sexual desire, you fulfill it, just like when you're hungry, you eat. And that was another, apparently, mantra. But Paul debunks that, just like he debunked the first one when he says, but God will destroy both of them. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. That's the word pornea. It's a single word. But for the Lord and the Lord for the body. To debunk some of the Greek thought of the time and to 
give them a biblical worldview, Paul says, no, actually your body is for the Lord. Now we could say our stomach was designed to digest and process food, but your body as a whole is for the Lord. The Corinthian might say, sex is just something you do with your body. My heart and soul is with God. There are no entanglements necessary. Get satisfied and move on. Have you heard that before? Oh, you could just have a one-night stand with a person. You could hook up with a person, and it's no big deal. You both just get some satisfaction, and you move on. But let me tell you, you don't move on. It's been said that you can't go to bed with someone and leave your soul parked outside. You can't. God's word says, no, your body is not for pornea, sexual immorality. It is for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Wow. That should rock our worldview. Amen? This is what the Bible says. The Bible says, actually, your body is for the Lord. It's for his use. It's for his glory. You and I were created to know God. You were meant to know God. And the way God has decided to have a close union with you is to come in some way that I don't fully understand and live inside of you. We're studying the book of Esther, and there's a king. In Greek, he's known as King Xerxes. And uh, he has a harem of all these women. And Esther ends up rising to be the queen by God's providential hand. And when Esther rises to be the queen, it's God working to save the Jewish people. But the king, 14 years later, uh, is executed. He's assassinated in his bedroom by people who served him. And it, it's an apropos thing, and here's why. Because we're told by extra-biblical sources that the king was messing around with some of his subjects' wives. He was getting close to them, flirting with them, and so forth. And they didn't like it. And so in the place where he had damaged so many lives with his concubines and harem and so forth, he was assassinated in his bedroom. As if to say, you've ruined so many people's lives right here by making it all about one man's pleasure. Everybody's got to serve at the one man's pleasure that you're killed right here where you did damage. You see, the Bible does say that your sin will find you out, but the Bible also celebrates the fact that we are forgiven by God. Notice in verse 11 of the same chapter. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. When we read the, the verses of uh, 9 and 10 there, we see so much sexual sin that's rampant in our day, including fornication and idolatry around sex and adultery and homosexuality and so forth. These are sins of the body. But then Paul says, that's what you used to be, but you were washed. Praise God. You were sanctified. You were justified. You don't have to be defined by your failures or even sexual brokenness. You don't have to be defined by that anymore. But Paul might add, but don't go back to that. You've been washed from that. Don't, don't go back to the little snappy sayings or sound bites of the culture or somehow believe that just because you are saved by grace that you can just continue doing 
what you want. Your body matters. In fact, in 14, it says, Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his, his power. There's going to be a bodily resurrection. We'll get a full treatment of this in chapter 15. But suffice it to say for right now, the body that you now inhabit is going to rise. The, the Christian church, the teaching of the scriptures, celebrates a bodily resurrection. The Greeks thought the thing you need to do is get rid of your body. Your body needs to be, you need to be free from your body. You can even see that in Eastern thought today. But not the Bible. The Bible says you will experience a bodily resurrection, that your body is sacred to God, and that he will raise the bodies of his saints on that day. He will change us to be like our Lord. And so he says, do you not know, 15, that your bodies are members of Christ. The word member there is kind of pictures that, you know, members is used in Romans like your hands and your eyes and so forth. And here, it, it's a picture of a limb or an organ of the body of Christ. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ, that which Christ inhabits, take that away from its proper use and make them members of a harlot or a prostitute? And then Paul uses this strong language. You could say it this way. God forbid, perish the thought, never, exclamation point, may it never be. That's how strong this is. That you would take something that God has now said is sacred and attach it to something that is not. In fact, the prostitutes of the day of Paul were connected directly, in many cases, to pagan temples. In fact, they were considered to be servants of pagan gods and goddesses. And they believed, to a large degree, that they went, when they had uh, a sexual uh, relationship with someone, that they were serving the false god or goddess. Now, can you imagine this? This, this is hard to take, but imagine for a moment, a man is in the Corinthian congregation, he goes to a morning service, worship's going forth he's raising his hands he's praising the lord jesus let's just say he's a christian and he experiences the power of the holy spirit and he gets filled up and the word of god is taught and let's say that he leaves church walks through the corinthian city goes to the temple of aphrodite and then sleeps with a prostitute who serves a false goddess can you see what paul is saying he's saying what, what a major disconnect from a moment where you are communing with the living God in this sacred, incredible relationship, and then you leave and go and commune with a pagan God through a prostitute. Are you with me? See, this is, this is what's happening here. Light and darkness now coming together. The, that which should be glorifying Christ taken away to, uh, into this sort of relationship. So the Christian life is one where Christ and his ways and his power are uppermost. You and I are vessels of God. We are to serve him as clean vessels. But let's face it, we live in a world that is dirty. <laughs> it doesn't take much. It doesn't take but a second to find how weak your flesh can be. Amen? You can feel so spiritual in church, so close to God, 
And it could be in a microsecond, sometimes in the church parking lot, sometimes at the donut table, when you say, but where's the one with the sprinkles? And somebody says, oh, so-and-so just took the last one. What? <laughs> so, I like my sprinkles. Right? Or it could be traffic, or it could just be we're watching television and a commercial uh, comes on or something, and the darkness of our flesh is evident. Amen? Nobody wants to say amen to that one. I don't want to say, I'm not going to amen a negative statement. <laughs> but here's the deal, right? We see the struggle. That's why we're told to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. That's why we're told to put on the armor of God. We are in a battle. Every single moment of every single day. Let's be honest with each other. It is a battle. That's why the Bible says, guard your eyes. Watch over your heart with all diligence. For from it springs the issues of life. And we can casually as Christians say, it's no big deal. I won't be affected by it. But the truth is, we all are. Do you not know, 16, that the one who joins himself to a harlot is one body with her? Now look at this. For he says... The two will become one flesh. Now you could write in your Bible Genesis 2.24 because that's where it comes from. In some way, when a person sleeps with someone outside of their marriage, here a prostitute, they enter into a one flesh relationship even though here it's not marriage. I had a friend who some years ago said, he read 1 Corinthians 6 and he said, does that mean that anybody you sleep with, you're automatically married to them? And I said, I sure hope not. <laughs> That's not what the Bible's saying. And I said that in response to that because of all the immorality. There's a lot of people who then who don't know they're married that they are, right? No, but here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, you're taking something intended for marriage, Genesis 2.24, and taking it into a relationship that's not marriage, but acting as if it was marriage. And some people are doing that, right? Acting as if they were married when they're not married. And so the two people have sex. Notice the idea of joining himself. And there's an inevitable unifying or uniting effect. One body. Notice, one flesh. From my notes. Sex is something that involves the whole self and surrender to another. Sexual intercourse is the joining together of persons with all their spiritual associations and is not simply the coupling of bodies. It is well beyond a hug, a touch, or a kiss. Sexual union creates an enduring bond, a oneness. There is no such thing as casual sex. There is nothing else that involves us, all of us, including our bodies. Everything we are, quite like sex, does. People could have their reasons. They could say, well, uh, I got together with this person for pleasure or gratification. The prostitute might say for financial gain, right? Let's be honest. That's why she's doing it. Because she either is serving the God or goddess or she gets some sort of financial benefit from it. Well, the, the people on either side could make their case of, as to why. 
But the Bible's saying what happens when this happens. And furthering the argument, he says the 117 who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Greek word, if you're interested, is kaleo for joins, K-O-L-L-A-O. The verb is used in the Septuagint to refer to sensual unions and spiritual bonds. And so you've joined yourself to the Lord in a spiritual relationship, and your intimacy in marriage, in some mysterious way, pictures that. And of course, our relationship with the Lord is much different than our sexual union in, in marriage, but our marriages in some way become a type of picture of our closeness to God. And I will not tell you that I completely understand that, but here's what Paul says. This is Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, this mystery is great, Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So our marriages become a message of the gospel. Our love one for another, our fidelity to one another, our commitment to one another, our intimacy with one another. And so this is why Paul says in 18, flee, that means run away, shun. It's a present imperative. It means habitual action, Make it your habit to flee immorality, or pornea. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man seems like a pattern of life. He's an immoral man. Sins against his own body. Because of this union with God, when we sin sexually, we sin against the Lord and against ourselves in a unique way. One writer says, physically and spiritually... Um, with one spouse, a one flesh union uh, is pictured here, and spiritually with the Lord. Thus, sexual sin strikes at the very roots of our being, violating that for which we were created. So you say, well, what's the solution? In a crazy culture like ours, run! <laughs> Flee! This is what Joseph did with Potiphar's wife, right? Every day she was saying, sleep with me, sleep with me, sleep with me. My husband's away, sleep with me. And finally, Joseph literally ran away. David didn't run away. David saw Bathsheba. He tried to inquire about her. And then, and the whole time you're reading the story of David, you're like, David, stop, David, run. Why? Because you know how the story ends. It's going to be ugly. David, no! You want to yell through the corridors of time at him. Stop! But the story has been told. Later he'll say, flee idolatry. Here he says, flee immorality. Because sexual sin hits at the very root of our being. It's a sin against our own body. In what sense? Well, it's unique in this sense that it hits at the very core of us for all the reasons I've given you. Yes, other sins like drunkenness and even self-mutilation hurt our body. But in some way, sexual sin uniquely is a sin against our own body. And there are some that argue that Paul's even talking about venereal disease, which was rampant in the first century and rampant now. And so he says, to sum up, Do you not know 
that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own. Don't you know this? Third time in the section, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? This is the commentator, Um, with U-M. He says, no other religion would ever dare say anything even remotely close to that. God's, small g, lives, lived in temples, not human bodies. Gods keep their distance. They don't wrap themselves up with people, especially not with their bodies. But when you trusted Christ, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, and your body has become his temple. Is that not amazing? Is that not incredible? God is not some distant deity. He's not even a deity that lives in a temple specially designed for him. He lives in a different kind of temple specially designed for him. And that temple is you. You. And that should change our world view. <laughs> Amen? Because each time I'm going to make a decision, now I say, wait a minute, Christ lives in me, the hope of glory. I say, Lord, what would you have me to do? I might even say, Lord, I am struggling and my flesh wants to give in right now to this temptation. Help me. You live in me. Empower me. I have to be honest with the Lord. I am weak. I need help. Help me. You live in me. I'm going to call upon you. And this is the incredible truth. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. God himself, in some way that I don't fully understand, lives in my body. Why would he ever do that? <laughs> we know each other, right? We know other Christians, and sometimes we have to say, really? <laughs> God, God lives in you? Little girl said that. Mommy, I'm a little bit confused. The preacher says that God is so big that he fills the entire universe. But then the preacher says that God lives inside our hearts. If God is so big and yet he lives in us, wouldn't he show through? And the answer is yes. Don't little kids say wonderful things? <laughs> Yes, he should be showing through. And I do need to surrender. You see, brothers and sisters, you and I, 20, have been bought with the price. In light of this, therefore, glorify God. Where? In your body. Goodspeed says you've been bought and paid for. Spurgeon says your body was a willing horse when it was in service of the devil. Let it not be sluggish, a sluggish hack now that it draws the chariot of Christ. Close quote. Wow. I close with this. You've been bought with a price. Scriptures like 1 Peter uh, 1 where it says we've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. Ephesians 1, 7, we have redemption through his blood. Jesus saying, I gave my life as a ransom for many. All come to mind, but... Here's the story I close with. Remember the story of the book of Hosea? Hosea's name means uh, salvation. And it's a beautiful book in the Old Testament. If you haven't studied it before, it's, it's majestic. Here's what happens. God 
to picture his relationship with Israel, tells his prophet Hosea to marry a woman that will be unfaithful to him. And many people believe it's prophetic, that, that God's warning him that in the future she'll cheat on you. Some believe that she's actually a prostitute. And so Hosea is faithful, and he does what the Lord uh, calls him to do, and he marries a woman named Gomer. <laughs> I don't know what the parents were thinking, but all I can say is surprise, surprise, surprise. Some of you remember Gomer Pyle, others of you will not. That's okay. So he has some children with the woman, with Gomer, and uh, their names have prophetic symbolic uh, meaning. And sure enough, uh, she cheats on him. She she leaves and she's with another man or she goes to, off to be a prostitute. Don't know which for sure. But she goes and she's adulterous. She cheats on Hosea, whose name means salvation. And so here's the scene. This is chapter 3. It's only five verses. So eventually uh, Hosea finds out about it and he's been warned by God and he has to go to what appears to be a slave auction. And there his wife is being sold. Perhaps by something like a pimp. She's indebted herself in some way by her lifestyle choices and being sold on the auction block. Perhaps for the highest bidder. Can you imagine? There she is, embarrassed. This is kind of how the ancient world worked. And let's say there's someone who says, Who will offer five shekels for this woman? Who will... Man in, man in the black over there. Who will offer 10? Oh, there's a man in the white over there. Who will offer 15 shekels for this woman here? And a voice in the crowd says, I will. Sounds vaguely familiar to Gomer because the voice is the voice of Hosea. And he buys his wife back after she cheats on him. Imagine that. He goes to the slave auction. Can I get 15 shekels? And he says, me. And he gives some grain as well, which may equal 30 pieces of silver, which is the price or the cost of a slave. And he buys his wife back out of the life of adultery and fornication. And he says these words to her, and I'll, I'll just paraphrase them in our modern language, something like this. He buys her with his money, and he says, I bought you, you're bought and paid for. Let's go home. I love you so much. Let's go home. Please don't do that anymore. Please don't cheat on me anymore. But I love you so much, I had to buy you back. That's the language of redemption. Hosea's name means salvation. This is what the Lord did. I was that person on the auction block, I have to tell you. I grew up with knowledge about God. I knew some things about the Bible. But I had sold myself into sin. Maybe you could relate. I'd done many, many things the wrong way. I experienced emptiness and brokenness, a lot of which came from my own background and my own wounds. Somehow I bought into the world's mantras and little short snappy sayings. Found myself on an auction block 
enslaved to various lusts. And there was a salvation figure. His name is Jesus. And he bought me with the price. Not 30 shekels. Not silver and gold, but his precious blood. And he said something like this. Michael, I love you so much. Come home with me and don't do that anymore. That's what your salvation is. See, this is what the Bible teaches. We have good news of great joy to share. It's true, we've failed. It's true, we've made mistake, e mistakes even after becoming a Christian. It's true. But we have a Savior who says, I love you so much. You're bought and paid for. Come home with me and don't go back to that life. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for this precious congregation. Thank you so much for our great hero and Savior, Jesus Christ. Pictured in the prophet Hosea, but he didn't buy us with silver and gold. He bought us with his own death, his own blood. He died for people like us. It's amazing. And then you saved us, and then you say, now I'm going to live inside of you, and I'm going to give you purpose. And what was once used for sin and Satan is now going to be used for sacred purposes. And Lord, we struggle, all of us, to fight that good fight, to serve the kingdom of light, to serve the Son with faithfulness. But thank you for your patience, and thank you for buying us back. If you've not experienced that salvation and that picture uh, grabs you as it should, something like this, and I would just say to you, don't let anything stop you. Lord Jesus, something like this, say it out loud, forgive me of my sins. I've sinned against you, and I'm sorry. I turn from that sin, and I place my trust in you, and I thank you, for buying me back at the cross, for shedding your blood, for dying for me, for taking the punishment I deserve. Please forgive me and make me a new person. Come and live inside of me. Change me from the inside out. You don't have to have a perfect prayer, but if that's your heart, he will save you right now. He'll forgive you. You can know that you're going to go to heaven, but you can also know right now that you're clean, washed, justified. Father, for all the saints here who know that reality, but know that struggle as well, may we celebrate the feast, celebrate the reality of Jesus in our lives with, with truth and with passion and with all that we should do in response to this great salvation that we have. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.